Live from the center of the earth. Sammy. Yes. Hello. Hey. I can hear you fine. How you doing? I'm good. I had an interesting uh, moment about a week before I emailed you. I was reading your book on the subway. I live in okay. Toronto, as I mentioned. And uh, this dude, he saw me and he was looking at me, looking at me, and he's like, is, this, is that a Rod Sterling biography or is that a Twilight Zone book or what is that exactly? So I show him the cover oh. and um, I kind of just explain it's like a, a biography or like a documentation of all of Rod's work. And uh, he's like, oh, that's so cool. I just started the Twilight Zone. I'm like, the new one? Like Jordan ah. Peele one? He's like, no, no, the black and white one. I just started. I'm on the <laughs> second season. But it's funny just the way he's described. Like, it almost sounds like a Netflix show or something. Like, I just started, like, the show from yeah, 60 right. years ago. And I'm, like, on the second season. Have you seen it? Have you heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I hear that all the time. I mean, hey, it's getting new fans every day. You know, it's, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so. discovering <laughs> it. Yeah. So yeah. he's on the second season. I said, just hang in there. There's a little part in the middle where it gets a little rough. But the, by the time you get to the fifth season, <laughs> things will pick up. And he's like, oh, no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, um, he's excited. So. So. Yeah, yeah, very cool, very cool. All right, so we'll get started then. Okay, sounds good. Yo, I'm Sam Yunin, and welcome to my summer lair. This time it's located in the fifth dimension, between that which is known to man. I'm delighted to welcome writer Nicholas Parisi, whose dense and delicious nonfiction book is Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination, was released this past October by the University Press of Mississippi. Nicholas serves on the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, a charitable organization dedicated to preserving and promoting Rod Serling's legacy. We're going to get into all of that because 2019 is the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone. It's a senior citizen now. And dude was a guest on Coast to Coast late last year. Yo, now he's on this show. You're slumming it. So how, <laughs> how, how was it being a guest on Coast to Coast? Uh, it, it was terrific, Sammy, and thanks for having me on your show. I'm not slumming it, not slumming it at all. Oh, that's classy, uh, Coast yeah. Coast, was, <laughs> Coast to Coast was fun. Actually, Bill Moomy called in while I was on, so that was a nice surprise, and got to talk to him a little bit. So, uh, so yeah, it was very cool. You write a book, and you don't know where you end up, you're going to go after that, eh? Oh, yeah, exactly, right, right. I've uh, been on a lot of different uh, shows, uh, podcasts, and live shows, et cetera, and it's all good. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us the elevator pitch of what Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination is about. Well, thanks for asking. It's Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination is the first book that actually covers Rod Serling's entire career. So not just The Twilight Zone and not just Night Gallery. It covers absolutely every show that he ever wrote that was produced on television or in films and sometimes even in radio. Uh, from 1950 all the way through the time that he passed away in 1975. So it's part biography. Mm-hmm. And it's not a strict biography, but it's part biography, and it's part reference guide to all of those different works. And it's part kind of analysis or critique of, of his work and, some of the, and the themes that he was dealing with in his work. And um, it's, a, it's a comprehensive look at his entire career. And again, I think it's, it's the first time anyone has ever dissected his career in quite this way. Yeah, it's a massive undertaking. It's like being a comic book completist, right? Where you try and collect every single issue of like Uncanny X-Men or Amazing Spider-Man. Like you have to go to all these stores and shops and cons to try and get every single issue. Were you at all daunted by the scope of this project? Rod Serling wrote a lot. Like, did you have any doubts even as this journey unfolded? 
Not too many, but um, but you know, I'm glad you used that word completist because that's that's exactly the mindset that I had when I started this book. I had a completist mindset. I said, you know what? Every other source that I've ever read about Serling and and online, etc., they were never complete. They always were missing things. They always had some mistakes and just things that were just left out. And and I wanted to finally get the absolute complete record of everything that Rod Serling wrote that was produced. And every source had things missing. So, so that was my mindset. And I did approach it kind of like a collector, like you said about comic books. You know, if you collect things, generally you want to get all of whatever it is. You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, if you collect in Spider-Man, you want to get every, every, every issue of Spider-Man. You know? so, so when I was doing this, I wanted to get information about every single show. And that's, that's how I approached it. So it was daunting in the sense that, yes, Rod Serling was probably the most, most prolific writer in television history. He wrote over 250 scripts that were produced on television or, or films and radio. So that part of it was daunting. But the part that wasn't daunting was that I kind of, I had a very, very clear picture of what I wanted to accomplish. And I knew where the book was going to go, you know, so I, I really had a, a clear structure in my head. And so I just knew I had to put my nose to the grindstone and just, just do it really. How long did this take? About four years of, of writing and research and then maybe another year of miscellaneous um, editing and, and organizing and things like that. So about five years total. So there's two themes I find fascinating in your book. The first theme is legacy. Your book has a number of like Rod Serling quotes about his legacy. Like in 1963, Rod said, a year after Twilight Zone goes off the air, nobody will remember who I am. How does Rod's emphasis on his legacy square with like the temporal nature of television? So much of this work hasn't been seen or even preserved. Like this is TV from the fifties. There's barely an archive of any of this stuff. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book is because so much of Rod Sterling's work has been lost to time, and so much of it that hasn't been lost to time just hasn't been you know publicized or you know distributed in a way that people can actually see it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's natural that people only know Rod Sterling from The Twilight Zone or maybe Night Gallery or a couple of movies, and that's it. And uh, he wrote so much stuff and so much good stuff that I really wanted to shine a light on some of that material. And yeah, Rod Serling was very, um, you probably got the feeling from my book, that he was his own worst critic. He was his own harshest critic. Mm-hmm. He just, he never gave himself a break. And he just, he did not think that his work was going to stand the test of time. And he was wrong. He was clearly wrong. And he, he was, um, you know, this is coming up, it was the 60th year of the Twilight Zone. And it's, it's probably, it's about it's almost 70 years since Patterns and you know, Requiem for Heavyweight. And, and uh, so Rod Sterling has stood the test of time, and, and he would be amazed that he has, uh, that, pe- that we're still talking about him today. Yeah. The second theme kind of related to that is angry young man versus being an optimist. From the beginning, like from page one even, your book documents and emphasizes Rod's well-publicized uh, battle with censorship to say the things that he wanted to say. But did those battles also include budgets? Because TV, of course, at that time had just started to switch from radio. So was he limited by budgets in terms of the, the stories that he wanted to tell even before Twilight Zone? In, in a sense. He was, uh, budget was probably low on his uh, list of problems, so to speak. But, um, but he certainly knew, especially with the Twilight Zone, really, when he went into the Twilight Zone, he knew that you know, he wasn't going to be able to have, you know, the kind of special effects that, you know, motion pictures could have, you know, mm-hmm. he knew that much. And he knew that he was constantly going to have to cut corners to keep the sponsors satisfied and to keep the show profitable. So he was, uh, he had his, 
he had he was involved in all of that in that whole you know in the budget of every single show and i think i point out in the book that you know one of the ways that he dealt with the budget was just that you know every now and then you would see a twilight zone episode that only had two characters and it was just one room and that was it you know like like you know nervous man in a four dollar room that's an example of an episode where he said, all right, you know, we can cut the budget this week. We'll just have, you know, these two actors and one room and that's it and go, you know, mm-hmm. and he, so he could do that. And he, so he was hamstrung that way and that, and they, that he had to write stories like that occasionally. But, um, but, you know, he knew, he knew what television was all about. And he, so he didn't really fight too much about, about budgetary issues really, other than the, the bad, you know, terrible uh, experiments with videotape in the Twilight Zone. That's, you know, that was the one time where he rebelled against that cost-cutting measure and said, no, we're never doing videotape again, and, and I'm, we're, we should be very glad that he didn't because I, those, those episodes were terrible. Mm-hmm. The censorship battles that he had before Twilight Zone, if he didn't have those battles, would, would we still have Twilight Zone? Because he realized, he was always a writer who wanted to say things, and he wasn't always able to communicate those things until he got to Twilight Zone. So did those kind of battles kind of force him or kind of help spark the idea of Twilight Zone? To some extent they did, yes. Uh, he certainly said as much several times, so we kind of have to take his word for it that it definitely had that effect. Um, but I think it's kind of a, it's kind of a dual um, – the Twilight Zone was an example of Rod Sterling being able to have his cake and eat it too. He was having these problems with the, with the sponsors and the censors, yes, in the, in the sense that he wasn't allowed to address certain issues in straight dramatic shows. And so he did have this idea, you know, maybe if I do this in the, in the guise of science fiction and fantasy, I, I, can get, I can get away with it and I can have less interference with, with what I'm trying to say. But at the same time, he also just really wanted to do The Twilight Zone. He loved science fiction and he loved fantasy. Mm-hmm. And he kind of always wanted to do a science fiction show, but it just wasn't – it just wasn't allowed on television in terms of they just wasn't seen as a, as a serious dramatic format. You know, it wasn't something that a serious dramatic writer would do. Why would you do some monster show uh, when you could do Playhouse 90, you know? So it was always something seen classy. that way. And exactly. Yeah. And yeah. And when he started the Twilight Zone, he was, it was seen as a gigantic step down for Rod Sterling, you know, from live prestigious drama to this 30 minute filmed science fiction show. So so it was a risk for him in terms of his, uh, you know, in terms of his image, but he believed in it because, yeah, he did like he did love science fiction, and he did say, you know, if I do this, I probably can get away from some of these problems that I'm having in in straight drama. You bring up an interesting point because Rod did love science fiction and fantasy, as you mentioned, but like he he was liking it before Twilight Zone, if that makes sense. Like he was a pre nerd, really, before there was any nerdery. That's crazy. <laughs> Well, yeah. He, well, he was, he, you know, he he grew up in the in the forties, mm-hmm. uh, thirties really, thirties and forties. He grew up listening to radio, and he loved, you know, things like The Shadow and 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 uh, Lights Out and you know the classic radio shows and you know the Orson Welles stuff and mm-hmm. all that. And he read and he read the pulps, you know, he read comic books and he read you know amazing stories and and you know pulp fiction magazines like that. So he grew up with you know with a love for those kind of stories. I mean. King Kong was probably his all-time favorite movie. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he, he loved King Kong, so so that was his that was his thing. And and when he first got a chance to really write anything substantial for television, I, I talk about this in the book was was for a series in Cincinnati, Ohio called The Storm. And he wrote science fiction for The Storm. He wrote science fiction and fantasy, and he was able to. This is 1950, 51, so eight nine years before The Twilight Zone. 
And he was able to do it because there were very few restrictions put on him on this particular show because it wasn't a national show. It was only seen in Cincinnati, and, and, and he was able to do it. But when he started to break into national television, they just they just wouldn't have it. He couldn't even submit science fiction. They just turned their nose up on it, you know. So, so he couldn't really do it until the Twilight Zone. Yeah, I was like, I googled some dates just out of curiosity, like, because like I said, it's like he's one of the proud wa- nerd waving like flag out and everything. But it's like, Action Comics number one came out uh, 1938, April 18, 1938. The Twilight Zone, of course, premiered on in 59, and then Outer Limits in 63. Batman was 66, and Star Trek was September 8, 66. Those were the ones that kind of had a big cultural impact and kind of helped lead the nerd revolution as much as the comics and the pulps and the science fiction writers like you were talking about. But it's like, that's uh, that's kind of like revolutionary because nowadays we have a higher threshold for science fiction. Like uh, civilians are going to Marvel movies and they're fine with all of the space travel and time travel and there's nobody's like questioning any of it. But back then, I could mm-hmm. see how people would be like, wait a minute, that guy time traveled? That makes no sense. Like, there would be like yeah, a, yeah. A, a puzzling. There's, there's a lower threshold because that groundwork hadn't been done. That is exactly right. That's exactly how I see it. And that, I think that every, every TV producer and writer, creative, creative person in television owes a gigantic debt to Rod Serling for mm-hmm. setting, that, setting that foundation because exactly what you said he basically and he basically educated the mass public the mass audience in the in the foundations of science fiction and fantasy he taught them what it's all about on television and they just they hadn't seen it before and you're absolutely right he would get they would get letters all the time saying i don't understand this this episode what happened it doesn't make sense and and it was just they had to be taught to have that willing suspension of disbelief that's what you know. Rod Sterling used to say all the time. Is he, he credited Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who would say you have to have a willing suspension of disbelief when you read fantasy, and that's that's exactly it. You have to be able to say, okay, that can happen in the Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. and people had to be people had to be taught that. And yeah, you're exactly right. Now, things that things that Rod Sterling got hassled for in 1959 and 60 are so passe now. We just accept them. You know, time travel and everything else. But on television back then, it was seen as this wacky, strange thing that nobody could be expected to understand. Yeah, it's almost like back then, it's like somebody just time travels, and that's the whole thing. Nowadays, if somebody time travels, that's the start of something, either a book or a series. Or, like, you can't just begin and end there. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like, Back to the Future yeah. is a trilogy, right, of him going back and forth in the future <laughs> in the past. Like, you can't just begin with the simple concept. And what's fascinating right. too in the book is like you even talk about how like the sponsors, one of the sponsors of the show, didn't even get the show, even though they were paying the bills for it. Yeah, yeah. One particular, uh, um, Kimberly, I forget his first name, but the, Kim- the Kimberly Clark Corporation. Yeah, he he just completely didn't understand the show, and he was an older guy, and, mm-hmm. and you can kind of picture this guy back. It's just again, the picture him back in 1959, an old man who has never read you know amazing stories and sees this show and just says, I don't understand any of this, you know, it's just, it was just completely alien to somebody like that. So I want to ask you about five uh, specific Twilight Zone episodes and you can share sure. like something about Rod Serling or something you discovered in your research, or you can share your own personal feelings on the episode, either or. Sure. The first one is I Sing the Body Electric. This was the only one written by Ray Bradbury. Do you wish that Ray Bradbury wrote more Twilight Zone or contributed a little bit more to this series? Um, yes, I, I kind of do because I, I am a Bradbury fan in terms of his writing. I think you know he's one of the great, great, great writers of all time, and mm-hmm. and uh, I do kind of wish that they had found a way to include more Bradbury. But 
Sterling had, you know, had had issues with. Um, well, he had some, uh, eventually had some issues with Bradbury personally, but he also had some issues with Bradbury in terms of adapting his stories, and he just felt that Bradbury's language just didn't quite uh, translate to television, that his dialogue was a little too flowery, and it didn't quite fit into the mouths of ki- the characters, and, and so he had problems adapting Bradbury, and, and so, so that was the start of it. And then, yes, eventually, Sterling and Bradbury were very good friends, and, but they had a falling out, and, and they really uh, were not very close for most of the, most of the Twilight Zone's run. Uh, time enough at last. This one cuts me to the bone. And you and I were talking about this on email a little bit. Like that final shot as the camera pulls away and Bemis is crying. It's not fair. It's not fair. That one <laughs> that one hurts my soul. Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, I've, I've probably seen it 50 times and, and I still I still get the get the lump in my throat and the chills. And that's that's, uh, you know, a, a, a t- testament to to the writing and to Burgess Meredith's performance, you know, it's, it is a gut-wrenching ending, and it's a, just a perfectly done show. It's, it's just, uh, it's a great episode. And, and that particular show, you know, the one thing that surprised me is, you know, this was, I mean, I first saw this episode probably when I was 10 years old or something, when I was, you know, 1980, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it wasn't until decades and decades later that I started to hear from certain people, not a lot, but a few people who, who had a completely different take on the on the ending of that episode and i mentioned it in the book is that is that there are some people who see that ending as being being poetic justice in the sense that the character uh, i don't know it's a romney wordsworth but uh, mm-hmm. mr bemis he um he has as this you know detracted himself or subtracted himself from society and he just wants to read and he doesn't want to deal with people and this is seen as you know the punishment for that that you know okay you don't want to deal with people well we're going to take everyone away and we're going to break your glasses, so you can't read. You can't just read after you've rejected all of society. You can't just relax and sit down and read. And I, I think that's completely uh, the opposite of the message of what the show is actually saying. I think that's completely wrong. But, mm-hmm. but this, yeah, it almost seems a little mean. I've heard, I've heard that more than once, though. I've heard I've heard that from more than one person. So it's not like it's this crazy obscure theory. But I see it completely the opposite way. This is just this is the one time in the Twilight Zone history where somebody got something they completely did not deserve. Mm-hmm. You know, he did not deserve that fate. Absolutely. Yeah, that seems a little mean considering Rod Serling's work and everything like that. Yeah, yeah, that, that's not his style. But, but yeah, but I think he just he loved the what he would call the pure poetic irony of that of that ending, and he couldn't he couldn't resist that ending, even though it was seen as kind of sadistic almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, keeping with that theme of sadistic and poetic justice, the monsters are due on Maple Street. The Monsters of Doom on Maple Street is, you know, just an amazing piece of television. It's just, um, it's certainly one of my top five, you know, favorite episodes. Um, the, you know, the, the closing narration of Monsters of Doom on Maple Street is as, as blatantly um, socially, um, you know, it's a blatant social message uh, from Sterling, as blatant as he would get in The Twilight Zone about these issues that he wanted to talk about and that he was going to talk about in the Twilight Zone and elsewhere. And, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just a brilliant piece of television. And it, it holds up today. It's a message resounds today, unfortunately, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, that, that's a, a timeless, timeless episode. Like you, I was started watching Twilight Zone in the 80s sometime, uh, just obviously on reruns as a kid. And uh, I, I liked some of the more science fiction ones initially, the aliens and that kind of stuff. 
But I was shocked that even watching that, that I, I didn't fully, of course, you're like 10 years old, like you said, watching it. But like, I understood that was a profound truth. I wasn't necessarily able to articulate it, but I understood that this was, there was something significant that he was saying here, which is a testament to the writing. Yes, yeah, I, I agree. I, I felt the same way when I was a kid, yes. Eye of the Beholder. That's a freaky one. It is, uh, yes. And um, the thing about Eye of the Beholder, I, I would say, is I, I think that is the quintessential Twilight Zone episode. That, that's the episode that I would show to someone who has never seen the Twilight Zone if they wanted to know what it, what it was, what it's all about. I think everything about the Twilight Zone is in that episode. It's... You know, it's got the killer twist ending. Mm-hmm. It's got really cool, really cool monsters and cool makeup. And I think that makeup still holds up. I think it still looks great today. Mm-hmm. It's got per- perfectly written morality lesson in it that is not hit you over the head until the very end when you do get hit over the head with the with the, the leader of these people at the end. And it's just shot beautifully. The cinematography. It's got that noir quality to it, and the, the shadows and the darkness. And um, so I, I think it has everything that the Twilight Zone is all about uh, in that one episode. And that's, yeah, I, again, that's probably top five for, for me, uh, mm-hmm. that one for sure. I like how you said the noir quality. That's a good way to put it. That's a good way to describe that episode. That was a really uh, kind of a literally a dark episode. Yeah, well, you know, the, the noir aspect of the Twilight Zone in general, I think, is something that people overlook uh, often, I, especially in like the remakes and the, you know, the reboots and things like that. They get that it's science fiction and they get that it's fantasy and they get that it occasionally could be horror, but they miss the fact that it really was noir. It was, it was uh, you know, in a, shot in a time when, you know, men wore hats, mm-hmm. smoked and drank all the time. And, and there were certain, you know, the gangster characters and, the, and you know, all of them, you know, the, the malls, the, you know, the dames, you know. I mean, it, was, it really was very, very often noir. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's missed uh, in, in all of the other uh, remakes. And finally, uh, this one, this is one of the ones I liked as a kid and just blew me away. Will the real Martian please stand up? <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorites, too. Again, that, that's uh, the, yeah, the double I, twist. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it's the double. Yeah, exactly. They, I think, uh, you know, certainly once called it a Philip upon a Philip. I'm not sure where that word Philip comes from. But, mm. but um, yeah, the twist upon a twist. There are a few episodes like that that have a twist upon a twist. But uh, yeah, that the second twist I think is terrific, and and I don't care how cheesy the eye looks on that on the Venusian, you know. <laughs> to me, it works. I, I I thought it worked when I was a kid. I think it works now, and I just think that's a, a super. Don't I, I I love that episode. It's just it's 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 fun. It's so much fun. The the, the old man character, you know, is is, a, is hilarious, and it's just you know it's, it's well written, of course. And and I yeah, I, I love that one for sure. Mm-hmm. The audience too, because. They know there's a number of people. There's somebody extra in that busload that's in the diner. So, you as the audience, it's kind of like the monsters are due on Mabel Street, where you kind of start mentally turning on all the different people, trying to figure out yeah. who the person is. It's like it feeds back into what Rod Serling was saying, like how quickly it is to turn on people. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, and you you do, and they they play tricks on you. They kind of try to get you to think a certain person is the the alien. They try to get you to think everybody is the alien at some point, you know, and. Uh, so there's directing tricks, of course, and, you know, things uh, that, you know, the camera angles can do and things like that. But, yeah, it's, it's, they, they play, with you, play with the audience for sure. Mm-hmm. So switching yeah. gears, Rod Serling, uh, as part of your book, too, he wrote a Western series called The Loner, which was an ongoing TV show. This was not an anthology. 
Do you think that Rod Serling could have stuck with it, like writing uh, a weekly episode series like that? Because in anthology, obviously, you have to do consistent cast, like constant casting. You have to keep building sets, tearing down sets. Like the anthology shows are so much work. Whereas when you have uh, ongoing series, a lot of the sets are already built, the cast is already kind of formed. It would be a lot easier and less stressful on them, wouldn't it? You would think, uh, yes. In some ways, it would have been. But he didn't particularly like writing for a continuing character. Uh, it was the only time in his career that he did it, actually, was on The Loner. And he would say afterward that it was just, it kind of became like asking, asking Arthur Miller to write about, Walter, about uh, you know, the right depth of the salesman every, every week. You know, mm. it just, it just it got, it got monotonous for him. Uh, having said that, I think he certainly would have continued it because I think he did like the show and he did like the character. And, and um, you know, it just wasn't meant to be because, you know, the ratings weren't good and they had other problems. And uh, but I, I you know hope I uh, you know convey this in the book is that I love The Loner. I think it was a great show. I think it was a really good series, and I think there are some episodes of The Loner that I'll put up against anything else that Rod Serling ever wrote. I, I really think there's some great, great stuff in it. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things where I haven't seen any of that work, and I wanted to like track it down and kind of like check it out just because of the Rod Serling brand name. Well, it, it is finally available on DVD, at least in the states, uh, uh, and um, you know after like 50 years of being pretty much lost. It was finally released on DVD, and it looks good. It's a nice the prints are good and everything, and and uh, so yeah, so you can track it down that way. And similar to the Twilight Zone, uh, going back to that, like the other mini industry that Rod Serling somehow launched, which is crazy. Like Twilight Zone already is like a huge industry with all the different movies and uh, reboots and everything else going on. But he also launched another mini industry with The Planet of the Apes. Uh, you write in the book that Planet of the Apes was released on April third, nineteen sixty eight. And then over the next five decades, the film spawned four sequels, a television series, and two more reboots. That's crazy for somebody to, like, be able to pull that off for, like, a second time. Like, something that that could shape pop culture like that. Is there a similarities between Twilight Zone and Planet of the Apes? Or is that just Rod getting, like, lucky or just kind of that's the, the circumstances aligned for that? Well, I think there, there certainly are similarities between uh, Planet of the Apes and Twilight Zone. I think there's, you know, plenty of people have made the comparisons, especially with the ending, of course. Uh, that's a very Twilight Zone-esque ending to, mm-hmm. to Planet of the Apes. And, of course, it is science fiction, so it has, has that going for it. And, uh, but to some extent, yeah, he did get lucky on it because it was just one of these things that the original producer who had an option on the, on the, on the book, the Pierre Blue novel, uh, the King brothers, they they contacted him and said, hey, we'd love for you to give this a shot. And they sent him the book, and he immediately started, you know, adapting it. And and King brothers fell aside, and then um, uh, Arthur Jacobs came along, and, and he took over the project, and he officially hired Serling to do it. And, and you know, eventually, as I, you know, detail in the book, he Serling was uh, eventually, uh, he stepped aside from the project, and then Michael Wilson was brought in to rewrite Serling's script. And they ended up sharing credit on the on the final version, but uh, but Rod Serling really gave Planet of the Apes the structure that survived into the final version. Uh, he took the book and he made it filmable because mm-hmm. the book is nothing like the movie. The book, book is very very different from the movie, and but Rod Serling really gave it the plot points that would make the movie move along. He he gave it the character arcs that you know developed in the movie. He wrote the ending, uh, regardless of what some sources have said. He wrote the ending. And so Michael Wilson basically rewrote almost all of the dialogue. Uh, but Sterling had given it that kind of the skeleton that he had that Michael Wilson had to work from. Yeah, one of the best parts in your book is when you include little passages of uh, Rod's writing. 
in it and you get to see some of the script dialogue or some of the script scenes and stuff like that his writing is really good i know that's a, that's a simple observation but it is like that's really solid work rod <laughs> yeah there are there are times yes there are times when i when i do it uh, particularly i could tell you patterns you know when I, I i do quote some some passages from the patterns from from the original uh draft of patterns and Patterns, if your audience doesn't know, was really Rod Sterling's first breakthrough hit. It was a huge hit. It was on Craft Theater in 1955, and it's what really made him a television star. And the ending for Patterns was rewritten uh, dramatically, and it was rewritten on the suggestion of somebody else, not Sterling, but, but the story editor said, why don't we do this instead? And Sterling kind of fought it, and then said, okay, I'll do it, and rewrote it. And the ending was one of the most acclaimed parts of the, of the show, but what I think I show in the book is that the original ending was was predictable, and that's why they changed it. But it was still powerful. It was a really powerful piece of writing, and I I, I thought I really wanted to include that in the book because yeah, when I read that, I was just like, man, that's good. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just you know, you get the, the hands on my arm stand up. You know, like that. He was when when Rod Sterling was good, he was fantastic. Yeah, which sadly brings us now. To when he was not so good, which is the Night Gallery. I was, I was dreading to bring this up because I struggled with the show even as a kid watching it, and I just didn't have the same connection, I guess, as uh, Twilight Zone. And I, I'm wondering too if Gallery suffered from the fact that, like, you kind of document this a lot about how, like, Rod really focused on like individuals and down on their luck and underdogs and obsolete men people that were kind of like fired or at the end of their time, like a, like a boxer who's past his prime. But with gallery though, a lot of the, a lot of people were like richer. They had butlers. There was more upper class people. Like they were like, it even started with a painting every episode. Do you think that kind of class division kind of separated it? And was one of the reasons, one of the reasons why I know there's many other reasons, but one of the reasons why it didn't connect as well with an audience. That's an interesting, that's an interesting take on it. I hadn't really considered that particularly. Um, I do think that Sterling, uh, you know, despite the, you know, yeah, the, the painting motif and everything, he did, um, he did get to his kind of his his wheelhouse of characters in terms of say the tearing down Tim Riley's bar. That's a, a clearly a Sterling esque character in that particular mm-hmm. episode. Uh, the Messiah on Machete is a Sterling esque character. Uh, so yeah, he did he did get to those those kinds of characters. But um, but yeah, I think as you said, it had a lot of other things that that went awry with uh, with it. Uh, you know, besides that, have you made peace with it, or are you like in terms of what like you said, like you really like the loner, for example? Obviously, you're a big Twilight Zone fan. Uh, how does Night Gallery fit into like his other work? Is it something that you're fond of, or you've made peace with it, or resigned with it? How do you feel about it? I, I think and I, I hope you know. There's one one of the things about the book. I actually I was I was kind of worried about a little bit is that I I had a feeling that the Night Gallery fans were going to hate me because because I felt like I really took you know took issue with Night Gallery on a lot in a lot of different ways. But but at the same time, I thought I was fair because I do point out when the Night Gallery was good, and I think it was very very good frequently. And and I again I, I hope I point out that I think there are a couple of episodes of Night Gallery that are good, that are great that and again that that Rod Serling wrote. I. I again about the book. The book only covered what Rod Serling wrote, so I didn't get into any of the episodes that that anybody else on Night Gallery mm-hmm. wrote. But but for example, an episode like the Messiah on Mott Street I mentioned. That's my favorite Night Gallery episode, and I think it's one of the best things Rod Serling ever wrote. Period. You know, so so there are episodes like that that I love, and you know, um, you know, an episode like Cool Air, which was based on an H.P. Lovecraft story, I think is again what a great piece of writing that is. 
Um, he loved uh, their tearing down Tim Riley's bar. That was his favorite episode, and it was, it was nominated for an Emmy Award for Best Dramatic uh, Presentation of the Year. I'm not as fond of that particular episode, but he loved it, and, and plenty of other people loved it, too. So there's that episode. So there are, I think I, I point out in the book, I think there are probably eight episodes that Rod Stone wrote for Night Gallery that are great. And then there are a bunch of good ones, too. But unfortunately, I think what, what Night Gallery had going against it was, you know, even though even as Twilight Zone was a mixed bag, you know, not all of them are great, of course. There are plenty of bad ones. But Night Gallery is a, is a more of a mixed bag. It, it goes from great to horrible. You know, there are, mm-hmm. there are some really awful, awful, awful episodes of Night Gallery. And I don't like any of the short vignettes. They called them um, uh, blackout sketches. I, you know, certainly hated them. I tend to agree with them. I think they're all pointless. I could do without all of them. And, mm-hmm. and the other thing is that the, the third season of Night Gallery went for three seasons. The first two are actually pretty good. The third season is almost all awful. I mean, so you could just almost get rid of the entire third season. So that's that's a big strike against it. So so to give you the bottom line on Night Gallery, I like I you know I think it's okay, and I think some of it is great, but it's just a really really mixed bag to get through. Fine, we'll we'll leave it there. Um, <laughs> as as we've kind of touched upon all these things, Planet of the Apes, the the Loner Twilight Zone. That seems to be a consistent theme that when Rod Serling was good, he was really, really solid. And I guess this is part of the why there's a legacy now um, in trying to preserve him with the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, because it is a recognition of his work. Yeah, yeah. Recognition of his work and, and also recognition of him as a man, too. He was he was uh, a, such a socially aware and socially dedicated individual he gave speeches. He, he um, you know, he gave commencement addresses at high schools and colleges. He was a, a politically active guy. He just he believed in he believed in the best of humanity. He believed that we could be better than we have been. And the Rod Stone Memorial Foundation has that as part of its as part of its um, you know duty is that we're trying to you know try to keep that spirit of Rod Stone alive as well to make people aware of it of his philosophy, really. And, you know, I don't think there's a, a writer, I, I can't name a writer whose philosophy came through his work more than Rod Serling. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, every writer, every writer, their philosophy is going to come through in their work. But to, for me, Rod Serling is a, you, you can't help but watch, you can't help but know exactly what Rod Serling believes if you watch his, watch his work or read his work. Uh, it's, just, it's just there. It's just so, so, so obvious. You know exactly what Rod Serling believed, you know exactly who Rod Serling was, if you watch the Twilight Zone or anything else that he wrote, there's always Rod Sterling is always in there somewhere. Do you think he was always aware or conscious of the audience too when he was putting those messages and that social commentary, that philosophy, or was it just kind of like he just wanted to kind of do it no matter what? Like he didn't not that they didn't necessarily care about the audience, but it was he, he the message was more important than the audience's reaction. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think it was more just part of the job. You know, he really thought that it was the writer's job to do that. He he knew that he had an audience to entertain, so he he was he was always conscious of I don't want to knock anybody over the head with this message. I want it to be, you know, presented in an entertaining way in the sense in the in the course of a story that people are going to like, and in the course of a you know in the mouth of a character that they're going to relate to. But it was just part of the job. He believed that everything that a writer writes should say something about something. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be anything. It could be any issue. It didn't have to be an issue that Rod Serling believed in. It could be the opposite of what Rod Serling believed in. But he, he, he thought it was the writer's job to at least address something in, in, in any particular show. And so anything he wrote was going to have some kind of a message in there somewhere. 
And I, I hope I, you know, I, I pointed out in the book is that if you go back to his really, really early stuff, you know, sometimes the message is one line of dialogue. It might be the most, most flippant, you know, disposable half hour of TV you can imagine, but there's one line of dialogue where you say, that's Rod Serling. That's what he wanted to say in this, in this show. Mm-hmm. And, that, and there it is. You know, it comes through. It's like you, you see it, and it's just like they might as well be, you know, splashing lights on the screen. <laughs> say, this, this is the point of this show, you know. And, and that came across over and over again when I was reviewing and watching uh, Rod Serling's early work. Even some of the examples you gave, like of how Rob would uh, imbue uh, like a Nazi, like a German Nazi, with like humanity and empathy, and like he was struggling and stuff like that, like character. Whereas everyone just wanted to see them evil and just kind of write them off. But Rod would like recognize that this was a man, and he was making choices. Maybe not necessarily good choices, but he was making choices. That's a phenomenal like stance to take, especially because he was writing the fifties and sixties. Like this is just after World War Two. Yeah, and which in which he served, and and he happened he happened to be Jewish, and uh, you know he uh, was born into a Jewish family, and and um, and he served in World War II, and he had no love for Nazis, that's for sure. But as a writer, he believed that he was going to address characters as people, not mm-hmm. as representatives of some some group. He was going to represent them as people, as as individuals, and and they had to be real life individuals. And so if that meant that by some chance one particular Nazi soldier turns out to be kind of, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time, doesn't think of himself as a Nazi, he just happens to be a German soldier, and he really does have a conscience, and, he, and he's struggling with what he's been told to do. Well, you know, that's going to offend some people, but he's just going to do it because he, he believed that they had to be one of those, you know. They couldn't have all been, all been uh, monsters and animals, you mm-hmm. know. They had to be one of those. And so he was, he was going to prevent that possibility, and that's how he approached it as a writer. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the themes throughout the Twilight Zone, for example, is that, like, we may look at that character as a Nazi or we may look at that character as a loser or a prize fighter who's past his prime or whatever, but they don't always necessarily see themselves that way. They always believe that there's something they can turn around or there's some luck or something. Like, there's there's still hope. They haven't accepted the narrative that we kind of already bring to the table. Yeah, right. He, he believes that every, everyone has that inner, that inner dignity that's possible. They always have a, a, the possibility of redemption, you know. Now, at the end, on the same token, I want to stress that, you know, you have a character like, like Gunter Lutz in, in Death's Head Revisited who, who is nothing but a monster and, and, and absolutely evil, and, and uh, he's a Nazi, and, and he's, given, and he's mm-hmm. punished for being a Nazi. And, and so you have that side as well. But Masks. Masks was another one, too. I'm sorry, what was that? Masks. That was another one, too, where Masks. Oh, Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the people in that episode are just yeah, they're just hideous. They're terrible people. So yeah, he, he wanted to address both uh, possibility, you know, both sides of any particular character. Mm-hmm. The uh, Sir, Rod Serling's Memorial Foundation should be really excited because the, this is the 60th anniversary of Twilight Zone. Is there anything coming up, or what they have planned, or? Yeah, we're very very excited about this. This um, yeah, this will be the third year that we're doing what we call Serling Fest. Uh, in Binghamton, New York, which is Rod Sterling's hometown. Mm -hmm. And we did it last year, and we did it the year before, and this year is going to be bigger and better um, because it is the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone. So we're doing uh, October 4th, 5th, and 6th. Uh, We're uh, holding Sterling Fest 2019, the Twilight Zone at 60. And it's going to be at three different locations in Binghamton, all within basically walking distance of each other. Um, And... Yeah, we're going to be there's going to be a dozen writers there who have written books about Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. Anne Serling will be there. His daughter, actually, both of his daughters, Jody Serling, will be there also. And you know, we're going. Uh, Bill Mooney will be with us up by satellite. We're going to interview him. 
uh, on Saturday. And we're going to have a whole bunch of different presentations and Twilight Zone screenings. And, and it happens to be the 50th anniversary of Night Gallery also. So we're going to have a Night Gallery presentation with the, um, the Night Gallery pilot film, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the better examples of Night Gallery. And uh, so it's, yeah, it's going to be great. If, you, if people go to robturlin.com, they can see uh, the details and how to get tickets. And, you know, you can go for one day or you can buy a three-day ticket on, on the website. And it's, it's really going to be tremendous. Uh, we're, we're really excited about it. And what about you? Where can people find you online? People can find me online. Um, well, on Facebook for sure. I have a page that is dedicated to the book. So it's not, you know, my personal page. It's actually the book. And I, I post all sorts of Rod Sterling-related uh, stuff on it. That, that's facebook.com forward slash Rod Sterling Dimensions. And uh, I also do have a website, uh, www.rodsterlingdimensions.com. Mm-hmm. And the original, the original working title for the book was Dimensions of Imagination. So that's, that's where the website came from. But, um, but yeah, so people can find me on there. And I, I post uh, about the book, but also about, uh, about all things Rod Sterling on, on there. And I try to post as often as possible. So, yeah, people can check it out on there. And, and you can get the book pretty much anywhere you know, anywhere books are sold, Amazon for sure, and Barnes and & Noble, and, you know, pretty much anywhere else. Yeah, and the book is Rod Sterling, His Life, His Work, and Imagination. I'm going to close on asking you a really hard question now that we've gotten through all the fun stuff. I want to ask you a difficult question. Flight 33, did you believe that I got a home, or was it stranded in prehistoric times? <laughs> Flight 33? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. That is a tough question, because I think I, you know, I mentioned in the book, Twilight Zone was often seen as leaving the endings kind of ambiguous and not letting you know what exactly happened. Mm-hmm. But I think that's nonsense. I think the, I think the Twilight Zone usually does tell you exactly what happened or at least give you a really good idea of what happened. But honestly, a Flight 33 is the one time, I think, where it totally leaves you where, without knowing what happened. Do they get back or do they stay in prehistoric times? You have no idea. And, and I honestly don't really like the episode for that reason i think it's i think it's kind of a cheat i think they, they i think there should be an ending there should be an ending to that episode so um i would have to flip a coin to see if they got i think they stay in prehistoric times and then and there should be a sequel somewhere down the line where there's a time travel back there to, to rescue them you know that, that would be that would be a way to do it interesting <laughs> considering that rod is a optimist you don't think they would have made it home and like I think they made a valiant effort. I think they had just enough fuel to make the effort, but they uh, but they failed. And that would ha- that would be kind of Sterling esque. He he loved the idea of it's almost like uh, almost like Sylvester Stallone said in Rocky. It's the idea of losing with dignity, losing with losing with pride. <laughs> like you know, if you can stand up and make this, give it, give it your all, but still come up short. You know, I think he actually would have probably liked that kind of an ending. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're gonna close on that. Thank you, Nicholas, for hanging out. And uh, as I said, the book is Rod Sterling: His Life, Work, and Imagination. The show is celebrating its 60th anniversary, and of course, it's uh, floating around on various uh, sci-fi channels, and uh, there's DVD box sets and all kinds of things, and it is well worth time to go back and check it out if you have never seen it, if you're on the second season. So thanks, Nick. Thank you, Sammy. I appreciate it. Have fun. Mm -hmm. I was trying to figure out the first episode of The Twilight Zone. I don't remember which one it was, but I knew early on. I don't know what it was. Like, I had no idea what the show was, and I'm just this punk kid, and it's black and white and everything, but it connected, it resonated. And I'm like, I don't know what this place is or whatever, but I'm in. I don't want to be a tourist. I want to, like, hang out here regularly. And I'm glad that I've been able to contribute in whatever fashion uh, some help and assistance to make sure that Twilight Zone has gotten to 60 years. That is impressive, and I thank Rod Serling for his work. Um, for taking the time and the effort to make something so crazy and so amazing that it would last six years. That's 
astonishing. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, on Instagram, all my pal Sammy. I made your life simple, and uh, there's no uh, Twilight Zone uh, weirdness, uh, unfortunately, just a lot of sarcasm. So, my name is Sammy Yunin. Thanks for listening.